0: You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is uh, Meditation and Attachment Deepening of Practice. It's January 13th, 2022. It's 7.36 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And uh, we started talking last time about uh, vipassana as an integrated practice and then also how to organize your practice so that you get out of it the things that actually have meaning to you um, and didn't get all the way uh, through that topic, so I thought we would just pick it up again and continue talking about it. I often think of the preliminary practices as the attachment work. It's funny in the West, of course, we don't really do so much in that. Uh, The tradition here has been to just dive right into retreat practice. uh, And that mostly comes from the way that uh, the the Theravada practices have come over. Uh, The first generation as they're now being called because they're getting old enough that they're beginning to retire or die. Uh, you know, went to India and, 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 as part of the original hippie times, I like to call them the O.H. times, and uh, uh, <clears throat> came back with these teachings and, um, you know, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cordenfield, Sharon Salzberg, looked around for a place to to open a meditation center and they found a place in Berry, Massachusetts, which became Uh, um, Insight Meditation Society, and and that really was this retreat model uh, where you come in and you do uh, intensive periods of practice and then go home. Uh, There's advantages to that, uh, which is uh, that you develop the base level of concentration that you need to be able to do the insight work because you're practicing in these long, intense periods. Um, but uh, as we've moved from that now, what, 50 years later or so, um, more people are finding meditations through um, local meditation groups, uh, and uh, so the, that, uh, and not doing so much in the way of retreat practice. Who here uh, routinely goes on retreats? So about... We have about half, if we give a little wiggle room to the word routine. (laughs) Um, When I first started teaching, um, I uh, was teaching in the manner of uh, Shinzen Young and I would give the classes and not get a lot of traction from it. And I was wondering why that was. And then um, when people began to open up and actually trust me enough to tell me what was happening, what was happening was that they didn't have enough concentration to do the techniques. So they didn't see the point of doing the techniques. Uh, And that was an interesting revelation. And so I began to teach what I call a wet uh, insight practice or a wet vipassana, which is where there's a period of Intentional concentration training that precedes the insight technique so that you can settle the mind and actually be able to explore what the insight is that uh, we're asking you to find. In um, traditional Asian practices, there's a long period of preliminary practices before you pursue what is considered valuable in insight practice, which is the pursuit of classical enlightenment when I was in uh, Myanmar uh, in 2019, looking for a meditation center to take a group to, uh, I was introduced to a monk that had been doing breath counting for five years only. The the senior monks weren't satisfied at the level of his concentration and had not moved him ahead into the insight work for five years. What do you think, uh, how do you think that would go over here? <laughs>
1: Christian. Do you think that he was like doing, I mean, five years, you'd think you'd be able to figure it out. Do you think he was just goofing off or? Oh, no, no,
0: no. I think he was completely ardent, but that, uh, what they were, it wasn't that he, that he couldn't count the breath, uh, you know, perfectly for hours at a time. Uh, there was a, a kind, uh, another kind of maturity that I think that they were looking for. He was young. They wanted him to grow up and, and adapt more fully to the monastic life. That's what I would guess. Uh, they wanted him to be able to speak English fluently and become a translator. And so he, the reason that I was put with him was so, was so that he could practice his English. Um, uh, you know, I, I have a, a, another friend who's a monk who's who has been a monk uh, for a long, long, long time, and they still haven't moved him up because they're waiting for some quality to develop, which is all very uh, inscrutable in a way. I don't know that we have that so much here, the way that the the uh, the way that making a living out of the Dharma has developed in this country is... You write books, and so really, what you are is an author who tours and then also teaches. Mm-hmm. And uh, at at a certain point, how do you um, how do you follow uh, that is to say, or how are you followed by a teacher that they they're close enough to you that they really do understand where you are in your practice and what you need to do in order to move forward with your practice. Um, uh, when I was going on four retreats a year with Shinza and I had a sense that he was able to follow my practice closely enough that he was actually very insightful in the instructions that he gave to me but he has uh, a lot of students and is mainly retired now so it's hard to imagine that um you know Dan is another uh, Dan Brown is another teacher who has who follows students but he also has quite a few students and if you're uh, starting out in your practice and you want to go deep and you do want to pursue the classical enlightenment insights, how, how do you construct the practice in such a way that you're adequately supported? You have somebody who, who can understand where your practice is and so they can uh, tell you what to do in terms of moving forward. <clears throat> I remember um, maybe 20 years ago or so, being on a retreat uh, and listening to a student uh, quite aggressively chastise uh, uh, Shenzhen for giving contrary instructions. And he explained that, well, when I gave you the first instruction, I was afraid you were going to fall off the right side of the road. And when I gave you the second instruction, I was afraid you were going to overcorrect and fall off the left side of the road, Uh, and so really it's the the constant following of the practice and these small adjustments that are necessary in order to really sort of uh, pilot through. Um, So that's where the the community of meditators becomes important and, and access to teachers becomes important we live in challenging time to that because of covid most of the meditation centers i'm aware of in los angeles aren't open because of the of the difficulty of that and i'm not sure uh, um, when that that's going to really change and then we have the online uh, community which is good um, but then um, that doesn't afford a lot of time for uh, forming social connections with other people who are in the group, or in having uh, a sort of non-structured time with uh, the, the teachers in the environment that meditation centers used to offer. When um, the introductions to the heart practices became widely available, this would have been sort of I'm using a lot of passive speech, I'm noticing sort of maybe kind of, um, I'm I'm a little fuzzy on on the dates, and my mind isn't good at that part, so uh, I'll stop using uh, soft language and uh, be more gestural in my speech. So in the 90s, probably the first half of the 90s, I think that uh, the practices of the Brahma Viharas, the heart practices, became widely available, and that was actually quite good. Uh, I know for myself, I was uh, in the had the idea uh, mainly from the the teachers I was studying with that you should bear down really hard on the insight side and become liberated, and becoming liberated would be enough to resolve the householder problems that I was struggling with. But I found that. Um, even though I gained a lot of uh, insight that that those problems didn't resolve through insight alone. And a lot of what was difficult for me was the harshness with which I related to myself. And so the advent of the the heart practices was uh, terrific because it was a real antidote to that severity of of the way that I held myself. Um, When I discovered the attachments of of it made a whole different kind of sense in that the working model of myself, that harshness that I related uh, to myself with was actually a ref- uh, what I learned in the reflection of my caregivers uh, about me, that we we come into the world without a sense of self, uh, without a working model of self. And we look to our caregivers and in the way that they reflect that back to us we internalize their, their point of view or their opinions about how we are, which may not even be how we are. Uh, if you had, in my family, normal uh, attachment needs, uh, my mother would have found them onerous and burdensome, and she would have reflected back that, that, was the, that that's how you were, uh, even though what you were expressing was completely ordinary and normal. One of the things about the positives of course you pull all this apart and you, you're able to examine these constructions that you make and, and to see them the way that they are and if you add to that the lens of attachment then you can understand the origins of them and actually what a better view would be and then uh, if you take up the ideal parent for your work you can uh, change those working models so that they're more in line with the what a secure secure functioning model would be, which then of course supports the practice of uh, meditation in the pursuit of enlightenment, uh, which requires that you you have some uh, or at least enough stability that you can actually practice in a way that will produce those outcomes, even though there is also that serendipitous quality to how those insights arise um, it really wasn't until uh, I let's see if I can plant. I would say at the end of the the 20 knot, knots uh, that I really got hooked into this idea of metta practice, this integrated practice, so that rather than having these two independent practices where you spend some time in each the integrated practice of Medivipassana. So it's really only one uh, practice. Uh, Carol's posted that uh, podcast we were talking about uh, in the chat, if that's interesting. Um, The Imperfect Buddhist. So what I liked about the integrated metta vipassana is that you can use the activity of metta, and uh, in uh, and then use the experience that arises from metta as the the object for insight practice, so that you're actually dissecting uh, the the activity of intentional kindness uh, as a vehicle to understand the. Uh, nature of insight or the nature of insight into the human condition, um, which did not produce the, 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 the sort of jagged harshness of my early insight practice that didn't have that uh, kindness built into it. If you uh, have, uh, if you grow up in an adverse uh, environment uh, where your caregivers are quite stressed, And you begin to understand that they're taking in an understanding of you are processing it and finding meaning in it and then reflecting it back to you and that you are internalizing their reflection of you as who you are. Uh, And and, uh, there's an abundance of negative states associated with that. Then the utility of uh, being able to intentionally produce positive states and associate them with um, not only yourself, but uh, other people becomes um, incredibly valuable. Is that making sense? So that you can take the original construction of that self and add to it uh, positivity so that when the sense of self arises, it isn't uh, that one-sided negative experience that many of us grow up with Uh, dan often talks about the origin of self-hatred as the the aversion to these negative states that are uh, part of the self-experience or or what happens when that working model arises uh, and we recognize the pattern to be a representation of ourselves so um, you have in these working models, not only the uh, memories of the things that happened to you, but you have the mind states that you view yourself through or hold in association with yourself. And when that pattern of mind states arise with those particular memories, then you have a sense of ownership to them, a sense of their mind that are, is the self-experience. And if if those uh, states are... are predominantly negative, uh, and you lose your equanimity, of course, you can come into a place of aversion to the self, which is that root of self-hatred. But if you intentionally infuse into that working model these intensely positive states, then each time that self-experience is activated, those positive states are activated in relationship to you, so that they become part of the pattern that you recognize. And if you do enough of that, Actually, it is the uh, positive states that become the dominant experience of self. And then each time you notice the self arising, there's a pleasantness to it. Uh, I, I, I suppose that could flip into the craving side of wanting to constantly activate the self. So you have these pleasant experiences, but it's in some ways easier to hold that balance, that equanimity with the self experiences rising. It also gives you an insight into the nature of the uh, ephemeral nature of the self experience altogether. If you started off with an essentially harsh version of the sense of self, you do these um, practices that shift that into a predominantly positive experience of self, then you see that the sense of self is not solid and permanent and unchanging that it's adaptable to the experiences that you have Um, what i noticed just from the teaching side of this and i uh, is that when i started to teach meditation retreats we were basically doing uh, um, vipassana and every now and then we put a little whipped cream and a cherry of metta on top of one of the. The practice periods, but it was predominantly this, uh, vipassana, and so the first three or four days of the retreat, people were constantly coming uh, and needing emotional regulation because of the uh, harshness that they held with themselves and the the uh, upsetting nature of that. From an attachment perspective, one of the things that's curious about this is that the disconnection from other people in the uh, silent retreat uh, was actually quite aggravating. A lot of the things that would come up that could easily have been regulated through small periods of connecting to somebody else who was regulating wasn't permitted because of the the silence. I don't know if uh, if you've been on uh, meditation retreats and you've been going for a long time, can you, can you remember back what it was like to have that sense of disconnection and uh, the, the, the amplifying distress of, of being uh, emotionally dysregulated and, and not uh, feeling that there was an opportunity to re-regulate yourself. And then the thought of leaving the retreat arises, I remember. The first retreat I went on to Carol. Yeah, <clears throat> I th- I thought that was like part of the purpose. I mean, my negative states I would get so amplified. I mean, you couldn't help but you know become intimately familiar with them. So that wasn't it. <laughs> well, did you <laughs> were you able to stay in the retreat? well i wanted to leave i remember shinzen talking me down on one of the first ones and... so you went for emotional regulation yeah you i stayed to you and then you were able to stay yeah um that was also my experience on the first retreat i went to i was i was out the door and i just went in to tell the teacher i was leaving and then after talking to her 15 minutes i was fine and i stayed for the rest of the retreat yeah, yeah. Um, But is that hardship necessary to produce the insights that we need you to see in order to move forward along the path? And I'm going to argue against that being necessary. And what I notice in the Vipassana retreats that we teach that there's no distress at all for most people during the whole retreat, certainly not enough that would cause somebody to leave. Um, We have had uh, people leave and we we haven't shifted completely to the model that Dan uses, which is no silence at all. Um, Partly because the culture of uh, Theravada practice is so devoted to the the silence that it's hard to get people to agree to drop the silence. And so we have designated periods of talking, which we keep making longer and longer. (laughs) Christian. I
1: was, I was looking around on the retreat on the first day. And I was, I was trying to figure out if I was projecting or not, but everyone looked so miserable in their, in their like silence. And I'm just like, you know, like my, I guess my emotional regulation strategy was just playing tunes and, and making jokes in my head. So I was bopping around. I was like, oh, I'm so happy and I just looked so miserable. But I actually kind of enjoyed the, the silence, the balance of it. I felt like it was like a continuation of the, the sort of mindfulness of the meditation. You know, so when I was eating, it had that, it kind of forced me to that mindful quality almost without me having to do anything about it. And then it was nice to really have the, the evenings to, to talk. I, I think everyone probably looked forward to those. So yeah. I, found, I found it to be a good balance, but I could see how some could get dysregulated.
0: The, um, yeah, that, I, I, it feels like a good balance because everybody seems to be able to stay regulated enough to pursue practice. The thing uh, that Dan says is uh, that if you get so dysregulated, you're just hanging on. You're not really free to practice very well, and that it, it's better to be in, in a good state of mind, a balanced, and equanimous state of mind, so that you, when you turn your attention to practice, you're actually focusing mainly on the practice and not just on regulating pain. Um, you in uh, in the way that he practices, it's short, uh, strong determinations, and so you don't you, you really restrict any kind of movement, but they don't last very long, so that the intensity of the discomfort in the body that can arise from doing that doesn't get so great that it derails the meditations, uh, which can happen easily in in the duration sitting that's typical of a Theravada retreat. Then you're just simply regulating the painfulness of the body and not actually doing the insight practice, so perhaps not pursuing the insights in the way that you need to. So, um, then, what is it that you're practicing for? I think that that's one of the questions that's interesting to uh, figure out. What is it? What is it that drew you in the first place to practice, and then what is it that you? What is the long goal of practice? What are you hoping to get out of it, so that you can begin then to organize the practice in the way that you need to, so that you do uh, end up getting the things out of it that you need. Um, this is of course a goal correcting strategy because the uh, the process of insight that comes from doing the practice will reveal. Uh, more about what your goals might have been in the first place um some people would argue that non-goals are better than goals but i like to go with the culture and in our culture goal oriented and outcome oriented and that's instilled us instilled in us early oops um <clears throat> when I first came in I wanted to be enlightened and I had a, a sense of what that was which actually didn't turn out to be remotely related to what enlightenment is but it, it didn't matter because that's why I came in and in the first class I did a um at Ordinary Dharma in Venice with uh, Katriana Reed, uh, in the intro to the Vipassana meditation, we went around the the circle of the people were, that were there, and yeah, she asked us um, what, why did we come? And I uh, said that I wanted to be enlightened, and uh, which produced a kind of unkind laughter in my interpretation of what happened. It's hard to know what actually happened because uh, I also t- tended to think that I, I was an, an odd duck and that people reacted negative, negatively to me. But um, <clears throat> I didn't understand why we would engage in a practice uh, where the end goal was reputedly enlightenment, but nobody actually believed that that was something that you could attain. Um, that was a, a question that I had. And so I tended to gravitate more toward teachers who talk about this and also encourage you to try and get there. Uh, And that was uh, the one that I landed on and and have studied the most with was Shinzen. Uh, And he always said from the very first that that should be the goal of meditation um the end goal of meditation but uh, and and i've studied with dan who also says that so that's my orientation i say that uh, but you may not have that as as what you came here for and what you want to get out of it and it's important to understand that so that you can organize your practice in such a way that it produces the result that you need in order to keep practicing is that making sense it takes time, energy, and resources to do that. If you're in a householder life, it takes time, energy, and resources away from your householder life to create the the potential to withdraw into intensive retreat practice, which is going to be necessary if you want to do, I think, the deep, uh, deep practice. Uh, even, uh, you know, going, uh, uh, taking the time out to meditate, taking I'm away from people to meditate if you're involved in uh, uh, householder relationships. I uh, my idea of enlightenment in the beginning was that I would have I wouldn't have the problems that I had that I would become enlightened and, and those problems would uh, actually quite magically resolve and disappear. I had no real solutions beyond that magical understanding of what that was. Um, and um, So the reason that I, I, I talk about attachment so much and, and, and have organized a way of practicing with attachment is because that became a preliminary practice for me in order to uh, open up my life enough that I could pursue the longer goal that I had in mind. And that, I think that that works quite well. So as a householder, if you're going to remain a householder, which I also think is a good way to go, um, how do you organize your householder life in such a way that it, there's space for you to, to uh, undertake a deep practice, which means you have to have uh, stability, enough stability to do that. You need to have relationships that will support you and are good with, not only good with, but, Uh, actually actively encouraging you to to pursue this because it isn't so easy to do and um can you put all those pieces in place so that that's what's happening right you have a you know the the basics food shelter uh, clothing and medicine you have nurturance and that all of them come together to support you as you do that If you can't do that or or that's part of the suffering that you're experiencing uh, in in coming to practice in the first place, then it's useful to organize your practice in such a way that those things improve uh, by understanding why uh, you're having the difficulty around that in the first place and then developing the skills that you need so that you can move beyond that. Then, when you have that basis uh, to explore from, that's one of the things we talk about in attachment, these three uh, instinctual uh, relationship, uh, instinctual functions of human beings. One is the attachment system, one is the exploration system, and one is the collaborative relationship system. Attachment means that you feel connected to people, and you have a place to go when you're frightened, um, and that they'll receive you and and help uh, re-regulate you, uh, so that you can come back into a place of balance and safety. Uh, The attachment system activates and it deactivates the exploration system. So, that if you want to pursue things and explore things deeply, you have to be able to activate the exploration system, which means you need to be able to deactivate the attachment system. You're not frightened. You feel a sense of safety and uh, reliability so that you're then free to explore. Because if you're not, the attachment system will remain on and it will uh, inhibit your capacity to explore. And then the other piece is this collaborative relationship piece, that you have relationships in your life that you're in collaboration with, so that you're being supported in the way that you need to be supported. And in exchange for that, you're supporting other people in the way that they need to be supported, so that you don't have to do it alone. You don't have to do it with no resources. You have somebody that you can talk about your experience with uh, to help you understand it in in a more complete way. We see in the uh, attachment conditioning uh, how these things develop. Uh, We're all born uh, alone and incapable, really, of uh, discerning that there are other people outside of us as the brain develops we're able to recognize other people, but we learn a way of emotionally regulating ourselves really starts in in utero when uh, we're alone and floating in this uh, uh, um, uh, container that lets us grow. But we are we, we regulate ourselves, we develop all those things. Have you ever seen Uh, a newborn grab their foot and just put it in their mouth and uh, suck on their toes. It's an amazing experience, all of the different tricks that uh, infants seem to be able to do. But as the brain develops and, and we're able to recognize that there are other people that are coming and actually providing care from us, we reorient it toward an external regulation system. We let people take care of us. But that's only if somebody comes reliably enough. If nobody comes, we don't move from that auto-regulating strategy into the external regulating strategy. If somebody comes reliably enough that we are not frightened about whether they're going to come back or not, we move into the collaborative uh, relationship system. But if we have uh, unreliable, unpredictable caregivers who don't uh, ever allow us to settle that fearfulness about whether somebody's coming back from us, we don't move into the collaborative relationship system. So, to really have in place this structure that I'm talking about, we need to get to a place where we can form collaborative relationships, which comes from uh, the repair of these early adverse attachment conditionings. Once we have that capacity to collaborate with somebody to really explore and understand how uh, relationships work and what what's meaningful and the sense of safety that comes from being attached, um, we develop uh, uh, self-regulation tools. Somebody comes, they teach us, we mimic it, we're able to do it for ourselves, and so we. Develop these capacities for self regulation. Where self mastery comes in, uh, and this is, a, I think, a distinction that's important. Uh, we develop all of these different s- tools or all of these skill sets at self regulation. Um, depending on your family system, some of them are going to be good and some of them may not be so good. But self-mastery comes when you recognize which of these strategies is good and how to use them, and you begin to eliminate the afflictive strategies that might have been part of the family system in which you grew up in. So you're you're, you're a master at using your self-regulation strategies in all of the different circumstances that arise in your life so that you can be in a place of balance but because you've learned collaboration when you recognize that the emotional distress is so great that you can't balance yourself then you have this group of people that you've uh, developed that then can catch you and know you and know how to help you re-regulate so that you become fearless in your exploration as a result of that uh, you know that you can go really hard if uh, that's what, uh, if you accept that metaphor, because even if you get completely discombobulated, you have these people who know how to help you and you just rush back to them and they help you and you settle. It's when you don't have that, that you begin to limit your exploration because uh, you're too frightened of getting so discombobulated that you can't bring yourself back into balance. So as you limit uh, Uh, your exploration, of course, you can get to the point where it's despairing, because you're not finding out enough, you're not engaged enough. And this uh, actually only gets worse as you age, because it becomes harder to, uh, there's less energy available to go explore. So that's kind of why what, what I think about this process of organizing your practice with a long goal of enlightenment, but also understanding that in order to really get there, you're going to have to put together this support system that's that's going to be interested in you getting there enough that they keep encouraging you to do it. Any questions about all that before we sit some meditation? Why don't we do some insight practice? So basic, take you through a cycle of uh, uh, see or feel, focus in, focus out. So... Ready? Here we go. So, how did that go? The airplane crashed into your house. It's so loud. What is? An airplane? Oh, that's a helicopter. Yeah, it felt like it was entering your house. It was so amplified.
1: I was feeling a little apocalypse now. I don't know about the rest of the (laughs)
0: time. Was it all the way through or just now? No, just the last, uh, I don't know, eight or ten minutes. I, I think I don't even hear them anymore. They're so common over in my neighborhood. What? It's gone now. Yeah, it's circling. It'll be back. (laughs) It was really loud. (laughs) I think when the, the microphone is set to auto, you know, if it goes quiet, it turns up the volume. But sorry about that. okay. just hear out. Yep, hear out. Everybody good? Thank you for coming we have a few things coming up. Uh, we have a couple of level twos coming up one is a, a, on a Saturday, which is starting, I think, uh, in uh, in about 10 days and then we have one also starting at the end of the month on Sunday, some people have said that they couldn't come to the Saturday ones, but would like to come, so we, we are offering the series on a, a Sunday. Um, and then. Uh, The first week of april we have another level two starting the um uh the current one is full so that's the next one starting up if you're interested in that take a look at that it's on the website Uh, i offer this class on uh, christian
1: sorry i i i kind of did have a question um i think i still i was like Maintaining the meta mind, I guess. So I, I think I was making it more difficult than it needed to be. But I was trying to see if I could find any feel in at the same time, and and I was having trouble um, finding the difference between the the mind state and the feeling. And I don't know if that's something like when you have a strong meta mind can you actually find that clarity through practice? Or is like, is there just overlap between the, the mind state and the feeling state? Well,
0: the, the, the feeling state is distorted by the mind state. So you'd be looking for the way that the feeling state was distorted by the mind state. Okay. And the main way to do that is to turn it on, look at the feeling state, turn it off, and look at the feeling state and see if you can no- notice the difference between them.
1: Okay.
0: Good. Um, I offer this class on a Donna basis. Uh, Donna is the poly word for generosity. There's a link on the website. If you want to make a donation, any amount is appreciated. It helps support me and also the work that we're doing. Of course, everybody's welcome to attend without if you don't have resources. Thank you for coming. Really appreciate your practice and hope to see you soon along the way. Bye now.